Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Erlang's OTP JSON module has a little progress update. There's a PR for it. The EEP is the Erlang Enhancement Proposal. So as of this recording, it is currently still not merged in. There's an open PR for it. But people have been pulling it in and doing local builds and doing tests. We have a great little quote here. It says, with those changes in my benchmarks on an M1 Mac, the new JSON module significantly outperforms JSON by one and a half to two and a half times. And also Jiffy, the other JSON library, except in some cases where it's on par with Jiffy. And online, Mihao Muscala, who's actually doing the Erlang work, shared some more little details when he asked if Elixir would be getting an idiomatic wrapper around this Erlang module. He says, because of Elixir's compatibility guarantees, this could only happen when Elixir requires at least OTP 27, which will happen in two to three years. And he thinks that the current plan is to update the JSON library to take advantage of the new module if it's available. So if you're running on OTP 27, JSON would be updated to actually use the new module and if not, fall back to its current behavior, which I think is pretty elegant. Yeah, and just some, some more context there. Jiffy is a NIF. That's a NIF to a C library. So <laughs> the fact that this new JSON module written in Erlang, just Erlang, you know, is faster than C <laughs> somehow. That's pretty impressive just by itself, by the way. So I just really want to point that out. And JSON, the uh, Elixir library that it probably everyone's using, is written in just Elixir as well. Anyway, that's all very impressive. And just to reiterate, the big asterisks over all this is none of this is accepted. We This may not go anywhere. <laughs> This is just a EEP, you know, that's not accepted yet. And then here's some, this is a PR that like actually implements that EEP yep. that's not accepted yet either. So just continue holding your breath. But progress looks really great and I'm I'm hopeful. Oh, and we mentioned that the target would be OTP 27, which just had its first RC. <laughs> so that's like a tight timeline too. So I guess uh, they're, they're really shooting for the stars here. RC1 just released this past week as the time of recording. I think they said they plan to have just three RCs to sort out the bugs. And it seems like an iterative release, so to be 27. Well, I say that, but there's going to be some impacting ones. The biggest one is what we mentioned a couple of new cycles ago. They rewrote their documentation in the style of XDoc, which was a proper EEP as well. Like the documentation hunks are in there. They it's just OTP documentation wasn't using it the published stuff anyway. And that's a big one. There's another highlight in there that the maybe expression is now enabled by default. I've forgotten about that. So Elixir devs already know this as the with operator. Mm -hmm. Erlang didn't have one for quite a while. And a couple of versions ago, they introduced maybe, and it kind of operates like a with statement. That was apparently off by default. You had to really flag yourself into that one, I guess. Now it's on by default. So that's cool. Also, did not know this, but triple-quoted strings are now implemented <laughs> in Erlang. Just something I've just been so used to in, in Elixir for so long. All of these are examples of, you know, the documentation, the maybe expression, the triple-quoted string. These are all things that Elixir, I'm sure, like directly inspired Erlang to essentially upstream into itself, which is incredible. Very nice to see that get inlined upstream into Erlang proper. 
The intention with this release is to get feedback from users. It's a release candidate. They're all intended to get feedback from users. So you can give feedback either by creating an issue on the GitHub project or by posting to the Erlang forums. And for those Windows users out there and those Windows users on ARM architecture out there, so all five of you, <laughs> the Erlang 27.0 RC1 runs natively on that. So you should have a whole lot less trouble getting Erlang up and running. So that's also very good news. And next up, Fly.io announced a new globally distributed object storage solution that's using Tigris. It supports the S3 API. It's fully integrated into the Fly platform, so you can start using it through the Fly CLI, just like Fly Storage Create. And what's really fascinating, though, is that this is built with Foundation DB, and it's replicated through all these different regions within Fly. So for objects that are less than 128K, they're just automatically replicated globally, and it becomes like a global CDN by default for your application. And then if there's larger files that you can either explicitly have them replicated to other regions, or when you request it, it will be pulled to that region and then it'll also be cached there. People have been doing some really interesting things with this because it's actually a bit lower level than just a CDN. You could actually use it to build your own CDN. And at some point we should really talk about some of the crazy things that people are doing or that are potentially possible <laughs> with something like this. Like the idea of creating a fuse file system to an S3 bucket that's replicated, right? And like loading a volume that's replicated to multiple regions, you know, just weird, fun things like that. I was doing some pretty crazy things. It kind of like propelled SQLite also, like back into the mainstream, like Limelight. Oh yeah. It's kind of crazy. Next up, we got a new WebRTC library called XWebRTC. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely name. Well, my first thought was, uh-oh, <laughs> don't they know about the membrane framework? And spoilers, yes, they do. So they have a post about it, plus minus some contributors, I'm sure. But they have a, a blog post out there on Software Mansion's blog where they talk about it. They were using membrane and created this library as an answer to one of the challenges they had. XWebRTC is an Elixir implementation of the W3C WebRTC specification for browsers, which is typically more like JavaScript-focused, but... This is also what developers are accustomed to. And so they describe their reasons for creating this alternative by saying that sometimes we needed to contribute to the underlying libraries or even worse, maintain our own forks. That was a struggle. And it was tough to introduce engineers from outside of our code as it was completely different from the usual WebRTC API. Membrane's amazing for what it's designed for, but we realized that the WebRTC API doesn't really map well to the pipeline model, which made some things unnecessarily difficult. The pipeline model, membranes are uh, very much like architected around like piping these streams and modifying it in place. It's a design decision that, well, a lot of Elixir folks are familiar with, but when you're talking about stateful things, that can be difficult. If you're interested in WebRTC and Elixir, you should probably check this out. It's gonna be another one of those pretty important, I think, library to the ecosystem. Folks that are using WebRTC, though, probably are doing some interesting things like already. I consider that already kind of niche. Like who's going to be streaming audio and video like over over the net? Like I'm not YouTube, right? So I don't really do that. <laughs> but, but there's oddly enough, like there's actually more scenarios out there than folks realize where the, the internet is kind of native to audio and video streaming nowadays. We do a lot of that over the net. Of course, we should have a good solution. 
anyway, I'm, I'm excited to see that. Yeah, I noticed in their blog post that they were trying to maintain a lot of like code compatibility. Like here's the, how you would set up the WebRTC in JavaScript and here's how you would do it in Elixir and they're designed to look very similar. So it kind of makes me think, how are they intending for this to be used? With JavaScript, I know I'm running it in a browser. How is this one going to be work? We should mention that this is the 0.1.0 release. Yeah. So this is like the very first release of this. I'm sure there'll be more that comes out as their like examples and little projects that make it easier to get started with. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of like starting up a web server, mm -hmm. kind of to start up these things and like Bandit. It doesn't take much, but it, it kind of borrows that concept more than like piping a bunch of stuff around i guess <laughs> i don't know maybe maybe an analogy terrible one maybe hopefully not misleading maybe analogy is that a like x web rtc is going to be more like bandit is to the plug router mm, yeah you know the router is essentially a big pipeline of like processing your connection and that is to membrane right whereas x WebRTC is going to be a little lower level, a little bit more focused, a little bit more just bandit, just handle the web connection. I don't know. Hopefully that's helpful to somebody. <laughs> it's interesting. And next up, just wanted to acknowledge that the EEF or the Erling Ecosystem Foundation recently celebrated their five-year anniversary. And when this happened earlier in February, we kind of missed it. We just wanted to make sure we caught it and talked about it a little bit. So really, Five years, right? I remember when it was first announced. It was at an ElixirCon where they announced that they were going to be creating this foundation. And the fact that it's still going five years, it's a testament to the hard work and dedication of all the members, the sponsors and the contributors, people have gotten involved. And over the five years, they've created projects and working groups and working groups of like the security ones we've had even come on and talk to us about it. And like, what are the resources that they've been making available to the community through that foundation? They've been involved with conferences and open source projects and educational resources. So it's really great to see that it's been successful and it's continuing to grow. And I just appreciate all the work that everyone's been doing and contributing as part of that, because a lot of it, you know, it, it's just the people who are on these working groups, it's volunteer, right? And it's just more time that they're having to spend, but they're dedicating it to the Elixir and, and Erlang communities. Speaking of supporting the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, Gleam is also part of that, right? It's part of the ecosystem in a way. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this until today, but Gleam is looking forward to 1.0 release here soon. And I know that because they released an RC2. <laughs> <laughs> I missed RC1 and I missed the plans to go 1.0. But RC2 is out and it includes a bug fix that could crash the compiler for some generic types. Generic types are probably used in like everybody's unfortunately glean code because <laughs> that's just how types are and how people are they just like give up on types <laughs> and just <laughs> rely on your generics anyway sorry that's a little too stabby i guess of commentary on type safety anyway so gleam 1.00 rc2 is out if you're using gleam you probably should be checking this out because 1.0 is going to be a big deal in the gleam community and i'm glad that they're marking it as stable and last up just wanted to put on your calendars. It's time to start thinking about ElixirConf US again. So the call for proposals for training classes is open right now. And the call for talks will be coming up soon. So we have a little bit of calendar information here. So February 16th to March 3rd is the window for the training call for proposals. So if you're thinking of offering a class that you want to be available 
at ElixirConf. And there's also going to be a separate virtual training on a Friday. So like the main training, I think, is on Tuesday. And then there's the conference. And then Friday, we'll have a virtual training offered. So if you're looking to offer any sort of training, that's the dates you want to be paying attention to. Then the call for proposals for talks is March 1st to March 31st. So the month of March is that little window. So if you've been thinking about wanting to speak at ElixirConf or at least throw your hat in the ring and submit a talk proposal, you can start brainstorming and think about what you want to do now. The dates for it, just as a reminder, August 28th through the 30th is the actual conference. The 27th of August is the training, and that's the in-person training in Orlando. So this is all in Orlando, Florida. And that is the ElixirConf US 2024. Orlando being, I think it was at SeaWorld. Right, yes. It was at the Disney World Resort. Mm. But it wasn't like in the park, but it was like right there. Well, I think technically it was on the park grounds, but it's on one of those (laughs) hotels out there. This one's going to be at SeaWorld. So in the same neighborhood, but different park. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Tyler Young. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm very excited. I think this is the first podcast I've been a returning guest on. Woohoo! Yes, we've had you on before. So this is a different sort of podcast, a different sort of episode for us, really. What we're doing with this one is we're kicking off a series where we're going to be talking with multiple different people from different companies around all this stuff other than the Elixir system itself. We're talking about all the things around the system that support it for our company, for our team, for how we actually use it as a business. Because I think a lot of us, we have these ideas of, oh, I'm building this project. I've got this side project. I want to, I want to maybe someday launch this company. And then there's all these other questions around, well, there's all these other things I need to do to run my company and to support this system. And I thought it'd be really fun just to hear from other people in different situations about what's working for them. And the thing I really want to stress with this is I've never worked at a company where we had what I would consider the perfect solution, right? There's always some way we recognize this could be better. This is just working good enough for us for right now. And really, that's what we're looking for with this. It's just what's working good enough for you right now. Excited to talk to Tyler about that. Before we get into that, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, Tyler, just like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, so I live in Kansas City, Missouri. I've been here all my life. I have been a professional software developer for more than a decade. Um, And I got my start in Elixir in 2019. Got to build a Greenfield web server, uh, a game server for a flight simulator called X-Plane. And um, since then, I've gotten to work on some very cool Elixir projects, including at Generat Grid Services. They do IoT, real-time control of all these energy devices. Then most recently at Felt, where we do collaborative mapping. And today I am doing contracting part-time to pay the bills, still with Felt. And then the other part-time, I'm bootstrapping my own software as a service, doing website monitoring, but better. You're living the dream of like, hey, I want to build something of my own and have that be like my thing. I'm really happy that you agreed to come on and share some of both how things worked at Felt and what 
things work for that company because it's a different size company than what you're starting out now and then what's working for you now. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about the company that you're building right now. You mentioned kind of what space it's in, but you know, give us an idea of what kind of a company is this? Do you have any customers yet? Is it live? Anything like that? Sure. Yeah. So the, the service is called Sleep Easy. I've, I've used a lot of website monitoring services, you know, Pingdom, Uptime Robot, that sort of thing over the years. The user experience is kind of awful, in my opinion. Um, you have to know about things like like how they bill, like they bill based on the number of monitors. And it's like, what's a monitor? Like, really, I just want to know, like, is my website okay? And so Sleep Easy, the idea was we're going to like roll together all these different things that we can monitor about your site with zero configuration. It just works. The funny thing about that is that I've had to get really good at scraping websites because, you know, the companies I monitor, they've got Cloudflare between their web server in the world and, and that sort of thing. You know, Cloudflare is very good at filtering out bot traffic, which I happen to be, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the good kind of bot. One of the weird things about Sleep Easy is that I needed a whole bunch of RAM because I don't know if you've heard this, but Chrome takes a, a lot of RAM. It's, it's uh, kind of a resource hog. And so for any site that is fully client-side rendered, you can't just scrape the HTML and say, like, is the site okay? Right. Similarly, like getting around like some of the the more strenuous anti-bot protections, like if you don't have JavaScript enabled, like you're just out of luck. I needed a lot more horsepower than a typical web server. So that was where I kind of deviated from, you know, the path of, you know, just buying a platform as a service providers, uh, you know, four gig VPS and, and uh, just deploying it there. I saw your tweet where you found this like this super cheap server on some somewhere. I'm guessing eBay or something. I was like, eBay, yep. <laughs> it was like what four hundred dollars or something for this really nice like rack mounted, lots of gigs, like decent processor on it, like like a nice computer, like that anybody would be you know happy to use. But you found it for like so cheap, and it was just like when when I saw that, I was like, oh man, that is that is that's like yeah, it's front loading some of the cost. But it's like it's a known cost at that point, and it's very performance. You know, you can debug it right there in person if you needed to, like whatever, like you own it. There's no monthly bill other than the power, I guess, which Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have to get into that, I guess. (laughs) I found that pretty interesting because I don't know if it's against conventional wisdom, because I guess I can't call it conventional wisdom. I don't know if it's conventional wisdom, but I know the easy path is rent some cloud time from one of the providers out there and then be done with it or something like that. I don't, I don't know, but I find that to also involve like a long tail of just like infrastructure yak shaving that is just very distracting to the goal of what you're trying to accomplish. I don't know what, if you found that to be true or not with, even with your own equipment, but that, I don't know. I, don't know. I, I saw that tweet and I was like, that's, that's cool. That's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you. What we should point out is that you're talking about having this server in your basement. Yeah. Right? This is this is as on-prem as it gets. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes, this is actually on-prem. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of funny. The way I got here, in the area I live, the power grid is just like massively unreliable. We've got all these above-ground power lines, and I joke that a small breeze comes through and, and we lose power. And so when we first moved here, like it was like at least once a month we were losing power for 15 minutes or an hour or four hours or something. So we put in a battery backup. And now, you know, in the five months I've been running a server from my from my basement, we've had 100% uptime. Like the, the <laughs> internet service provider is actually very reliable. And then the house doesn't lose power. And so it's very funny. <laughs> but you're covered. 
Well, what's interesting is you are in one respect providing the service of being a monitoring solution. But then there's also the aspect of you need to know when this thing goes down or if it goes down. And I imagine if you're running Chrome as a headless browser kind of thing for automating these. So like the traffic is actually coming from a browser looking more native. If you're actually doing that, then, you know, that could flake out, that could crash, that could be problematic. So how have you solved the monitoring solutions for your own system? Let's first talk about Sleep Easy and how you're doing it there. At my scale, I really love AppSignal. They have an all-in-one thing to like you install their package and it's just like it's done. Like it's it's the easiest install I've ever seen. I got here after wrestling with like Grafana and that sort of thing and and being like the configuration was just overwhelming for somebody who had not been in there before. Mm. Yeah, so AppSignal does error tracking similar to what you would get from Sentry, although I think it's better than Sentry in that they're much better at deduplicating. Like these crashes are what a human would call the same, even though they happened, you know, on different lines of code or whatever and that sort of thing. So they're really good at that. They recently added logging support as well. So you can ship your logs to them instead of Datadog or, or what have you. I think the search feature is less advanced, but for my needs, the logging is is great. And they also do like host metrics. So you can see, you know, memory usage and and CPU usage. And they hook into a whole bunch of Beam stuff like Open by default. And so they just give you like an Open dashboard. And so you can see, you know, how is how is the system doing at a high level? And that's all stuff that I've built in the past by hand, but it's really nice to have it just done. That's cool. Were you using the same solution at Felt? No. So Felt was Sentry and Datadog from day one. And eventually we moved off of Datadog because like a lot of companies these days, we're kind of looking at the cost and being like, is this really worth it? And so we we moved logs over to New Relic. I would say the experience with New Relic has been great for logs, but in terms of alerting based on custom, you know, maybe if there's a certain log line, like we want a Slack alert, we want to trigger PagerDuty, what have you, that has been a little bit frustrating for us because you can configure an alert and kind of look at, you know, what it says, like, oh, based on these conditions, we would have alerted at these times. And there's something in there that like a whole bunch of smart people looking at it, we, we can't figure out why it doesn't actually work like that. Like, we'll look and we'll say, okay, that log line appeared at this time, but we didn't get the alert. Like, what's going on? It's unintuitive, to say the least. My experience with AppSignal has been better in that regard, too. I think it'd be good to just take a pause here and identify how big is felt your company, Sleep Easy, is that a one-person thing right now? Is it just you? Just me, yep, and and just me for the foreseeable future. Felt, I don't, I don't even know the actual numbers. We have a small team, but it's like it's one application team. We have a separate data team doing Python and and that sort of thing on the on the GIS side. Okay, so you are using AppSignal for your local smaller project, and that's totally meeting your needs right now. And it sounds really neat. I didn't know you could like ship logs to them. I didn't know that it had Open and OTP direct insights already hooked in. I, I presume that's using their AppSignal Elixir client. Exactly. Yeah, you add their package as a dependency, and it wires up most things. I think I think there might have been like two lines of code I had to to change as well. Very cool. So is that also covering your error tracking and reporting? That's like includes that. It's like notifying you, hey, these are the errors that are coming in. Exactly. Yeah. And you can change your alerting policy. Like right now, I've, I've got it set to only alert me about a particular type of error for like the first time it happens in a deployment, which is like the right amount for me. <laughs> I don't want no alerts. And I also don't want to alert every time you know something happens. Right. <laughs> 
All right. So at, at your current stage, I'm guessing scaling, you know, you, you have this one machine and you're probably not fully utilizing it anyway. You're not having to scale or anything. And maybe you could describe the, the usage of your application. Is it bursty? Is it all cron kind of timer based? You know, what's the pattern that you're seeing with your system usage? For Sleep Easy, it is all basically a, a fancy cron system. You know, we're, we're checking uptime between every 30 seconds and five minutes for all of our sites. And then, you know, once a week, we're doing scans of the whole website to look for broken links and that sort of thing. Once a week, it's checking your domain name, like renewal, SSL certificates, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's all a cron job, which gives me the flexibility to kind of schedule things so that they're not overlapping necessarily. What's cool about having you here is you're like telling us about two different companies, two different businesses, two different scales of operation, which is, I think it's fun. Why not pick your brain on both sides? With Felt, were there any needs that they had to adjust for scaling issues or anything like that? You know, Felt has seen the typical pattern that you see in a web app, which is like the database performance is the limiting factor. So, you know, we pay a couple hundred bucks a month for the database, the managed database server and render, a couple hundred bucks a month for the app server the app server is just like massively over-provisioned, you know, like we pay for it because like, why not? Because like there was one time where we needed, you know, five gigs of RAM. And so it's like, okay, I guess we're on eight forever. But for the most part, yeah, like memory usage is like a couple hundred megabytes. And, you know, the CPU is like 5%, <laughs> mm-hmm. even hitting the front page of Hacker News or TechCrunch or whatever, like the resource limits on the virtual machine have never been the issue. But it does like, jump into or translate into like database connections, I presume at some point. So have you found like a good strategy for dealing with spikes of traffic, even though the app is doing fine? But practically speaking, I see this translate into a bunch of like Ecto query. Gosh, what is it? I look at it every single day because it's an error that happens so often, but there's like two kinds of query er errors in, in Ecto. There's the one where the actual query took a long time it's a hairy query. And then there's the other one where there's there's not enough connections to get freed up by the time the queue, maybe it's queue time. Maybe that's what it was. The queue time, it wasn't long enough, which means that there just weren't enough connections in the pool around that were freed up in time for your request to get served. Those are like the specific kinds of errors that might show up. But do you guys have any kind of strategies on how you've dealt with that or monitored that kind of stuff? Yeah, you know, we've gotten to a point now where the production database is big enough that the performance characteristics are very different in production for a lot of queries than, you know, what you get locally. And so we've started having like, you know, if you're introducing a new query and it's not like blindingly obvious that it's already going to be indexed and that sort of thing, we just include a query plan as part of every PR, dump the query plan, stick it in the PR and, and you know, we'll kind of stare at it and say, okay, yeah, that looks fine. The queuing timeout is an interesting one because we do blue-green deploys. That's that's just what Render does by default. Works great. The issue we were having for a while was that when the old server would go down, you know, if we've got thousands of people connected, all of those connections, the Phoenix channel, all those channel connections need to move over to the new server. And when they were all doing it at once, no matter how fast your queries are, if you've got thousands of them coming in in the same second, you're going to have a bad time. And so we kind of had to do some finagling with that and put in... If the channel is closed, wait, you know, somewhere between zero and 30 seconds or something to spawn up a new one. So you add some jitter. That's pretty interesting. Right. Yeah. The reconnections. Yep. 
One thing we're really looking forward to is right now on Render, I don't know if they've published the docs yet, but soon they are publishing docs for like how you can know, like this server is going to be shut down. You'll have like two to three minutes. And at that point, we could start slowly migrating things over a span of three minutes before anything gets shut down. That will hopefully be the last we see of that issue. I haven't taken a deep dive like catalog of the behaviors that typical infrastructure tools use like Kubernetes or render in this case or fly, right? Like when the signal goes to the app to say, you're about to shut down, what is it? A, a SIGINT or something or SIG? It's not a kill necessarily. It's like SIG term. Maybe that's it. Mm -hmm. Something waits an amount of time for it to actually shut down before it sends the other like force kill kind of signal, right? And so it's in that time period. And so there's several layers in between that I can think of like that could care about that. Is it system D? Is it Kubernetes? Is it OTP itself? Is it the bespoke bash process you, you have that's starting all your required services? Like, what is it that is in between winding down and actually being down that needs to be like really understood to solve that problem? That's an interesting space, overcomplicated in a lot of places, unfortunately, maybe necessarily so. But all that, though, is to avoid the thundering herd problem. And in your case, it was based on WebSocket connections or Phoenix channels, whatever, to to serve up. And those apparently take up database connections. But every app I've been part of has had a similar issue in a different part of the business stack based on what their needs were. But yeah, deployments are a hot spot of those. So that's that's interesting. My colleague, Jason Axelson, actually published a blog post on the Felt blog. I can get you a link for how we handle those graceful shutdowns with Phoenix Presence in particular. Because what we didn't want was for the presence from the old server to stick around even after the person is connected to the new server and you get duplicates there. And so making that a, a clean shutdown helped us. Yeah. So one of the other areas that I'd love to touch on is, you know, we call it like business intelligence. And this is like that analysis of like, who are my biggest customers? How much are they using my platform? What does my signup rate look like? Are people coming to this service? You know, things like that. Are there any particular tools or approaches that you found useful for tracking and visualizing or just understanding that data? At Felt, we've been using Retool from the very beginning. And so Retool connects to a read replica of our main database. And we can basically just build fancy views of the database from there. And so we're looking for things like how many customers are like clearly using this as part of a core piece of their work. Like they're coming back all the time. They are inviting other people, uh, maybe they signed up with a business domain rather than, you know, Gmail or Hotmail or whatever. Those are like the, the core metrics. Retool is good for that, but it's also like you need a, an engineer to like, you know, if you want to, if you want to tweak a query or something like you got a NoSQL. If we were starting today, I think it would be really interesting to see how far we could push Livebook for that, especially with being able to deploy Livebook apps. We've just started moving in that direction. It felt like I think we have a live book set up and deployed and connected to the read replica, but it's it's very early days on that. Another question I think that just comes up in any business I've been at is like, how do you know that your business is succeeding? Like, what are my key metrics that I'm wanting to track to know that we're actually being successful, that we're finding a foothold in the market or whatever it is, that we're growing at the rate we want? What those metrics are change over time. So like, it's not like you're saying this is, it's one and done, like this is what it's going to be forever. But I'm just curious about what kind of metrics you would use to track to say with felt, is it signups or is it continued engagement or like with your new service, sleep easy? Is it 
signups or that they have X number of sites being monitored or like, what are you using to track success? Yeah. With sleep easy, it's pretty easy at this point. (laughs) We've got a free plan. You know, how many people are on the free plan? They created an account, they put in their website and they're, you know, getting emails from us. And then of course, like what's the conversion from being a, a free user to actually paying those numbers are small enough right now that they fit in my head. <laughs> <laughs> nice. With Felt, our analytics stack is in heap. And so for tracking like broad scale changes and that sort of thing, that's where that stuff goes. But that and retool. Just at the beginning of this year, January 3rd or something, we started actually charging money to businesses using Felt. So we've got like the free plan. If you're like a personal user, it's free forever. If this is part of like your GIS workflow, we have more fancy features that teams can pay for. And so of course, like the new metric as of January was like, how many people are paying us money? (laughs) Depending on the scale of your team that you're working on. So I I reckon this wouldn't be very relevant to a one person team because you are your own QA team (laughs) for everything. (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) But when you're working with potentially a lot of other folks who are like a, a separated QA team or something along those lines, right? Like there's the burden of other people trying to get to the same environment where you're trying to replicate a bug or set up to use a feature or some sort. I've had varying success at my own teams with PR environments, which is not something that is like enabled by default, like anywhere it feels like, right? Because a lot of this has to deal with like setting up new infrastructure. There's a lot of like tie-in down there are multiple services, right? It can be kind of complex to, to get there. I think you've written an article about this at some point or somebody near you, at least back at Felt. Can you tell me like what renders PR environments could be like? Like what was something to help speed up the review process? Because that's been a problem I've felt in, in, in certain teams is that getting stuff merged and out there, keeping velocity, you know, quick has been difficult sometimes. And I've heard that renders PR environments help make that stuff faster. What kind of experience do you have there? Have any tips? Sure. Yeah. So it's it's really cool. It's something I've not seen from any other platform as a service, but out of the box, they will spin up a complete copy of whatever services you have hosted in render. So for us, that's just the database and our one app server. If we were in a microservices thing, they would spin up many services. You can run a script after all that finishes deploying. And so in our case, we've got a script that will comment back on the original PR that spawned the new server with links. And so there's a link to like, here's a particular map with lots of elements, or here's a map with these lots of different layers on it. And and you can log in as all these different users. And that was all like a small amount of business logic that we created ourselves. But being able to have it just available automatically on the PRs is really nice. It lets people who are not technical, who don't want to check out the code and, you know, oh gosh, your Elixir version's out of date or whatever. Like sometimes it can be a big hassle to get the thing set up on your machine. It lets those people interact with a PR and say like, this doesn't feel right or I found a bug and, and that sort of thing. And even for developers, like if it's a small thing, like it's probably not worth me checking the the branch out locally. Like I can look at 10 lines and say, okay, yeah, it worked in the PR environment, ship it. Years ago, I worked at a company where they had built their own version of that. It's a plug into Jenkins, right? Oh, Jenkins. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which would queue off and launch these environments for reviewing the PRs, which was really great for people on QA teams who are not technical. They can't necessarily easily pull down the code and merge it in and then run it locally and just have confidence there. It just really lowered the barrier for the QA teams 
to be able to give feedback on the design of it, the experience, and oh, well, when I put in this funky data, I made it crash. That kind of stuff's very helpful. Yeah, so that's cool. I remember a workflow at one of my previous jobs. It was incredibly complex, you know, like <laughs> they, they had in-housed all of their infrastructure scripts and stuff. So like this was not like a, th a thing that you could buy <laughs> anywhere, but all of their infrastructure was stated in a series of YAML that inherited YAML that inherited JSON that inherited YAML that inherited oh, JSON God. that <laughs> was in Ruby. It was very, very strange. <laughs> but the idea, though, what that helped enabled was you could state your infrastructure needs in any kind of PR, and it would just react to that, like within the PR. And everybody, every developer had their own staging environment, I guess, right? To review somebody else's, you could literally just like tap into their developer environment and like see the thing, right? So instead of replicating it, you literally shipped your machine kind of idea. <laughs> I didn't love it, just for the record. Like it was very nice. Because that was just a problem you didn't have to think about. But it was also like, ah, I don't know, just too much to hold in your head. And also those stack traces, when you got things wrong, were just absurd. For us having a bunch of seed data, yeah, you know, we create like 100 users or something and a bunch of maps with, with all different sorts of data taken from, you know, like real maps as a starting place. It's been a huge accelerator. Because sometimes to reproduce a bug, like you need a really complicated map. Yeah to even see the thing. So not having to do that manually is, is great. Well, one of the things I want to touch on and make sure we talk about is this idea that there's different levels of what's a good solution at different times. And right now you're with Sleep Easy to one person project. I would just love to hear your thought process for how you evaluate what's important that you have now. Like you said, AppSignal is something that actually adds value to me right now while Business intelligence tools, I don't need right now. How are you making those choices? And at what point do you start to reevaluate them? Yeah, that's a good question. Being early stage and bootstrapped, the price of things kind of informs a lot of that choice, right? It's like, would business intelligence stuff be nice? Maybe, but I don't have you know the money to spend on it. For me, it's always just been when I feel a pain, that's the time that I'm looking to complicate my setup. And until then, like if I can avoid the complexity, I'd rather not. I can imagine a day where I move the server servers. Actually, I've, I've got a spare because it was so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe one day they go to a colo host or something. But I guess it's like, I don't want to do that prematurely just because there are a lot of like pressing problems that I could be spending time on. Yeah. I think of the whole idea of the MVP, right? We're familiar with what that is in a programming sense of, I just need to do the very minimum I need to be able to ship and solve people's problems and add value so they're willing to pay me money, right? Like that's like, what's the least I can do to be valuable to someone else? And then there's the MVP of, what is the least I can do to host and support this system in a way that doesn't overly burden me, like doesn't stress me out, like that pain-driven decision point, just like, oh, now this is becoming a problem. Now I need to like, maybe let's see how I can solve this. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for doing like the MVP, like hosting and the MVP analytics and MVP infrastructure as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there any other tips or things that you've learned along the way that maybe you would share with someone else who's wanting to follow the similar path of saying, hey, I've been in a, a company, been successful in that for a long time. Now I'd love to start my own business and maybe take that approach and any learned lessons that you would say, ah, 
think about this. You probably didn't think about this because I forgot to, to think about this. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a good question. You know, at first I thought that I needed to quit my job and do the the business full time. I was really, really fortunate that the people at Felt have been very supportive, super, super supportive, and they are happy to have me continue working part time and it pays the bills, really takes a lot of stress off. There's not like that urgency. Mm -hmm. That's certainly not something that's available to everybody, but I would say like contracting part time has been really good for me. The other thing I would say is like, yeah, just like you said, the, the needs of the business are very different from stuff that I've done previously. That's kind of fun, but it's also like like there's a danger of like, don't just adopt what a bigger company has done because it's not necessarily the right fit. I'm very glad that I'm not spending, you know, 500 bucks a month on my hosting when, you know, <laughs> I, I, I have not enough users to cover that by, by a wide margin. How have you dealt with balancing your feelings on like working on things that are mission critical versus marketing versus pricing model changes or, ver you know, versus things that you just like suspect are things that you'll need, but not now, right? Like having a slick Stripe checkout process or something like that. I don't know if you use Stripe or not or whatever, but like all these extra things. Here's some context. I have oftentimes had grand ideas to do something and launch something, but there is so much yak shaving to get there, to have like a what I felt like was an expected experience for a launch thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. There's a meme that's been going around that if your software startup has X, you launch too late, right? And and of course, like, you know, the, that can absolutely be taken to the extreme. <laughs> but I, I think it's true that like, like if you have Stripe payments integrated on day one, like you launch too late, you know, you should have you should have gotten the thing in front of users and and gotten their feedback before doing that, right? There are probably other features that you could have built in that in that time. Staying grounded in like building things that people are asking for is helpful. Of course, like as the the product founder, like you probably have a vision for for where you want it to go that might meet needs that people are not asking for. But I think to the extent that you can like base that on, you know, even if they're not asking for it on your product, like are people talking about this on the internet? Like this sucks. Like is that something you could do better? But yeah, I, I am definitely guilty of spending time on like speculative features that don't pay off. The marketing side helps there too. Like the more you're in touch with like, you know, does this message resonate with people that can kind of help guide the business direction too. It's tough. It's really tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet. On the flip side, usually this conversation ends, ends up being like, yeah, you didn't need that. You didn't need that. You didn't need that. On the flip side, have there been things that like, was such a slag to get through like you really didn't want to do it but it, it actually did pay off that you did do it like it was such a slag browsing through ebay but it turns out that server was <laughs> such a win well that part's fun it's fun buying hardware yeah. that's great that's, that's you know gear acquisition syndrome <laughs> i i talked about scraping getting the web scraping to a really really good point was like this is this is actually the third time in my career that I have spent a bunch of time trying to do web scraping, and I feel like I've finally gotten it to the point where it's actually reliable, and 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 it's reliable without running Chrome Driver all the time. Oh man, knock on some wood. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking about shipping the thing as like a maybe like a paid Elixir package because like I know like a lot of companies do you know they need scraping for like generating link previews and that sort of thing. That's beside the point. That was something where like boy, it was many weeks of like shipping it and using it on customer sites and being like, okay, it doesn't handle this case, doesn't handle this. 
Cloudflare blocked it uh, on this side and that sort of thing. Getting that right feels like the foundation of of the tech stack is really, really solid now. That sounds legit though, because like that's a core feature. That's like the the business, right? Of course, that that makes sense to spend a lot of extra time to make sure it was right. Yeah. If we spend a lot of time on the right things, then we're spending the time on the hard things that make our service valuable. That's the stuff that other people don't want to spend that amount of time on for their one-off situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I think I think it's a problem we all, as developers, we all struggle with. It's like, ooh, I could do this. Ooh, I could do that. And this would be so much prettier if it was like this. And it's not core <laughs> or it's it's delaying our launch or you know whatever it is. I desperately want to redesign the dashboard, but it's just like, that's never going to be the highest priority, at least, you know, at least not for the foreseeable future. <laughs> or it probably shouldn't be, you know, right. <laughs> get, yes. get a Slack bot inter- interface that uh, goes through a bunch of AI pipelines to queue a, a scrape. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I need more AI, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How else are you going to woo the investors? <laughs> Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. I love picking your brain for two different companies, you know, like the the two different scales of companies, because uh, I think as developers, many of us have been in those different sized companies, the the larger companies or the smaller ones or the smaller ones that grew to become large and they change and, and you see all that. I don't know that as many of us have actually been on those bootstrapped ones, right? That we've actually taken it off the ground, gotten customers and gone that far. So it's been really fun just hearing your thoughts on what's been valuable for you at these different stages. And I'm really grateful that you were able to share those with us. Absolutely. Thank you all. It's been a blast. If people want to get in touch with you, maybe they have questions or they just want to check out Sleep Easy, where should they go to do that? I'm on Twitter as Tyler A. Young. I joke that there are too many Tyler Youngs in the world. Likewise, my blog is TylerAYoung.com. I'm on Mastodon under the same handle. Yeah, reach out. I'd love to chat about this stuff. And we'll have links to your site and the show notes as well. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.